If you have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 26 at the very end of the chapter. And our text tonight will go from Genesis 26, 34, all the way to Genesis 28, 9. So as we begin, let me pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Full disclosure, I've never read it, but Leo Tolstoy's novel, Anna Karenina, begins with this line. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And I'm not sure whether he was right, but I do know that our passage tonight is about a family that is very unhappy in its own special way. But this story we're looking at, it's not a fictional story about a made-up, dysfunctional family. It's the family history of our spiritual forebears, and it is written for our benefits. Moses here has recorded for us the tangled web of problems going on in Isaac's household. And each member's attempt to solve them by taking matters into their own hands. Which, of course, only makes everything worse. This is a familiar story to many of us, especially us church kids. But too often, I've heard it told in such a way that misses the point. You may have heard this as the story of Jacob tricking his father. But it is far more than that. As we heard in the New Testament reading, the author of Hebrews tells us that in the end, Isaac's blessing of both sons was done in faith. And yet, this takes place in a convoluted, sinful mess. Derek Kidner is helpful when he writes, We shall misjudge the situation if we overlook the evidence of Hebrews 12 that in selling the birthright... Esau had traded away the firstborn's blessing. This makes all four participants in the present scene almost equally at fault. Isaac, whether he knew of the sale or not, knew God's birth oracle, yet set himself to use God's power to thwart it. This is the outlook of magic, not religion. Esau, in agreeing to the plan, broke his own oath. Rebekah and Jacob, with a just cause, made no approach to God or man, no gesture of faith or love, and reaped the appropriate fruit of hatred. So as we walk through the text tonight, we will see this unhappy family, as well as how the Lord sovereignly worked in spite of all of that, so that He could make His purposes of election stand firm. My approach tonight is going to be a little different than it normally is. There's no real outline because I want to work through the text, explaining it as we go, and then end by offering a few applications. But I've included two points in the bulletin. You'll find it at the back of the bulletin. The plot and the characters. Kids, you'll find the words for you to listen for in their usual place. So our passage begins 
When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimat, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. At first glance, that might seem like some random, superfluous information. But that actually sets the stage for later events that we'll see in this narrative. And it also gives us further revelation into Esau's character and the attitude that he had taken toward the blessing of God. Like his father Isaac, Esau was 40 years old when he married. But unlike Isaac, he doesn't marry one woman from among his father's clan. Instead, he marries two women from the cursed and wicked Canaanites, the very people who must be dispossessed from the land for the Lord's covenant to be fulfilled. Remember that Abraham refused to take as a gift even a grave plot from among these tribes. But Esau goes and he brings two of them into the family. He demonstrates that even though he might be Abraham's grandson, he would rather be spiritually identified with the line of Cain. You might remember from chapter 4, he was the ancestor of Lamech, the first recorded polygamist. And it's Esau's parents that have to bear this consequence. They made life miserable. And we're talking about far more than awkward Thanksgiving dinner with the in-laws. Esau here is exposing this whole family to the blatant cancer of idolatry. Which makes Isaac's favoring of Esau all the more disheartening. But Isaac did continue to favor Esau. Look at the beginning of chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, it's important to understand what Isaac is proposing here. The normal practice, and what we'll see later on in Genesis with Jacob, was for the patriarch of the family, when his final days approached, to arrange his affairs by calling in all of his sons and apportioning the possessions among them, passing along a blessing to each heir. And typically the firstborn would get a double blessing. But notice here, Isaac is scheming a way to cut Jacob out of the will. He's going to pass the blessing along to Esau alone. And also remember that the blessing here is not merely the well wishes of a father for temporal peace and prosperity. But the blessing of being the heir of the promise to Abraham. Isaac here is essentially functioning in the office of a prophet, speaking on behalf of the Lord. So knowing that, we see how much more disastrous this whole mess is than it appears at first glance. Because remember, Isaac and Rebekah received the revelation before the twins were born, before they did anything, 
that Jacob is the one chosen by the Lord. Esau was to serve him. And even further, whether Isaac was aware of it or not, Esau had thought so little of his place as the firstborn that he sold that place as the rightful heir for a pot of beans. And it might even be here that Isaac is consciously trying to work against what God had spoken so that he could give this blessing to his favored son. This this narrative is about far more than just Jacob deceiving his father at his brother's expense. Isaac and Esau are just as culpable in this fiasco. But the ever-vigilant and active Rebecca caught wind. She sprang into action. Moses writes, Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Rebecca knows the injustice that her husband has orchestrated. And she also knows that it violates the word that God has spoken. But I don't think we can give her too much credit. I wish I were convinced that she were motivated by faith in God's word. But the very fact of the solution that she comes up with, I think proves that her plan is driven much more by her favoritism of Jacob. Because rather than confronting her husband and his sin, rather than praying for the Lord's intervention, she leans right into Jacob's greatest skill, breaking God's law by cheating and lying. She doesn't work towards repentance and reconciliation. She doesn't ensure that both of the boys receive the proper blessing from their father. She does not prayerfully trust the Lord to fulfill his word. Instead, she decides that she needs to lend a hand. She manipulates the situation to Jacob's advantage. She knows just the way to Isaac's heart through his stomach. So she handles the details and she sets up her baby boy for success. Jacob, though, is no dummy. He sees a hole in the plots. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. Isaac is blind. But he still has hands, and Jacob's smooth skin is sure to give him away if his father touches it. And notice, Jacob here is only entirely concerned with himself. In the words of one commentator, it is remarkable that his scruples were founded not on the evil of the act, but on the risk and consequences of deception. Jacob is fine Mocking his father 
by dishonoring him, lying to him, and taking advantage of his infirmity. His only fear is getting caught. But not to worry, Rebecca says. If any curse comes, let it fall on me. And she speaks so flippantly here that I can't believe she actually meant it. I think instead she's being dismissive. Just do as I say. I'll worry about the details. So reassured that the plan has at least a good chance of working, Jacob agrees. Verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious, uh, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. This blessing is going to be a formal ceremony. So she goes and she pulls out a garment that the firstborn son would wear for a special worshipful occasion. She places it on the younger son. And then she almost pulls a reverse Genesis 3.21. Think back, remember, after Adam and Eve sinned and their fig leaf loincloths were insufficient to cover their shame, Moses writes, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. But here, to cover up the truth and to sell the lie, Rebekah puts garments and skins on her younger son. And then she puts the food in his hand and sends him in. The rest is up to him. Or is it? The narrative continues. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game so that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. The ruse is off to a bad start. Jacob enters, and, and Isaac is immediately dubious. He asks, who is this coming in? And the bumbling nature of Jacob's response doesn't quite completely come through into English. But first, he puts the emphasis on I. He says, I am Esau. Your firstborn son. And I've done what you wanted, so let's hurry up and get on with the blessing thing. Isaac, of course, remains unconvinced by the blatant lie. Even the mighty hunter Esau, he wouldn't have been able to so quickly capture the prey and prepare the meal and bring it in, would he? So Jacob compounds his lie with a blasphemy, taking the Lord's name in vain. And notice he says, the Lord your God granted me success. Not the Lord my God, or the Lord, the God of our family. The Lord Isaac's God has granted Jacob success, he says. And the scriptures are so beautiful because 
we know he's speaking more truthfully than he realizes. But even that doesn't convince the blind man. Perhaps because Esau would never have credited any of his accomplishments to the Lord. So Isaac decides, I need one more test. Come close. Let me feel you. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. And he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. So in this back and forth, Jacob probably realizes how tenuous this situation is and how foolishly he had prattled on earlier. It was his voice that nearly gave him away. So now his speech is very brief. But his mother's plan worked. The father's hands felt the skins. So one last time, he gives Jacob the chance to come clean. And one last time, Jacob seals the lie. Isaac relents, and he commands his son to commence the ceremony of the meal that went along with the blessing. Then Isaac finishes the meal, and the time has come to give that blessing. Moses writes in verse 26, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The first thing to notice here is now at this point, all five of Isaac's senses have been incorporated. He can no longer see. He hears and recognizes the voice of Jacob. He feels the arms that must be Esau's. He eats the stew and drinks the wine. And now finally he smells the garments of his favorite person. The picture of Isaac here is someone that's almost more driven by his senses than faith in the Lord. And this last one, the smell of Esau's garments covering Jacob, drives the old man straight into his blessing. As for the content of the blessing, it has, it has hints of the Abrahamic covenant, but it's granted in more general and starkly earthly terms. Matthew Henry observes that Isaac here, he assumes he's blessing Esau, So he may have actually tailored this blessing to his son, knowing that he didn't possess true faith. But one line in the blessing should stick out. Isaac, thinking he is speaking to Esau, says, Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. This, as Richard Belcher comments, is a direct contradiction to the prophecy, the older will serve the younger. Isaac is deliberately intending to undermine God's word in Esau's favor. 
And in the process, he unwittingly confirms what God has already spoken. God's word does not return void. And all of man's efforts to undermine it will only make it stand more firm and more sure. So the ceremony is complete and Jacob hurries out and not a moment too soon. Verse 30 we read, As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau his brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, and you got to, I mean, you got to hear the, the laugh that has to go with this, right? Who am I? <laughs> I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. So Esau waltzes in, pleased with the success of the hunt, and he presents the requested meal to his father, ready to get the blessing ceremony underway. So imagine the look on his face when his father says, if you're Esau, who took the blessing? Because that question is rhetorical. The English downplays the visceral, physical reaction that, Jake, that Isaac has here as he convulses, realizing what has happened. This is a turning point for the old man, which will become even clearer later as he sees that his plan has been foiled, but now he submits himself to the reality of God's word and purpose. And although the text doesn't say Isaac repented here. The rest of the words, the rest of the words that he speaks throughout the rest of this narrative sure look like fruit in keeping with repentance. But Isaac is not the only one who realizes the gravity of what happened when Esau was on the hunt. We continue, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now behold, he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you. And all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. You can hear the anguish in the son's voice. This man of strength and prowess humiliates himself crying like a self-pitying child, begging for a blessing. And when his father speaks aloud what they both know to be true, 
that the younger son has once again gotten the better of the older. Esau responds without a hint of admitting his culpability that it is Jacob who has deceitfully taken what Esau considered worthless in the first place. And then without a trace of irony, he asks, don't you have another blessing for me? Which is why we must clearly understand the plan at the beginning of the chapter. Isaac and Esau's plan backfired. They planned for only one son to be blessed, so only one son was. There was no blessing left for Esau. In the words of one commentator, had all proceeded according to custom, Esau would have had everything and Jacob nothing. And this is just what Esau experiences now, as the father explains. Esau gets poetic justice. What he and Isaac had meant for evil, God meant for good. And he had worked it according to his plan. But, We must realize also, there's still a path to blessing for Esau. It was contained in the blessing given to Jacob. You heard it. Which was given to Isaac before him, and Abraham before him. All Esau has to do, if he wants blessing, is to bless God's chosen blessed one. All who bless you will be blessed. The pathway to blessing for Esau lies in covenant solidarity with the mediator of the covenant of grace. If he would but humble himself before his brother, Esau would be exalted. So we shouldn't be too moved by his crocodile tears here. Esau, in asking for this separate blessing, is once again rejecting the promises of Abraham, and looking for something, anything else. He is a living example of what the Apostle Paul calls worldly grief in contrast to godly grief. Esau, like his uncle Ishmael, could have stood beside his brother and been blessed, but he refused to do it. And so he forfeited any hope of sharing in the covenant of grace. That's why John Calvin compares his tears here with the weeping and gnashing of teeth that Christ tells about in hell. He is sorry for his condition, but he is sorrier still that deliverance would be of a spiritual and not an earthly nature, and it would require his repentance and humility. So while God's purpose in election stands firm in his rejection of Esau, And his acceptance of Jacob, it is played out as Esau, in return, rejects the way of salvation. Isaac does have a word for Esau, but he's not going to like it. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother." But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. The so-called blessing that Esau gets is little more than a curse. With the promise of a reprieve at some points. 
Orchard Belcher observes, there is no divine invocation in it. And as Gordon Wenham points out in his commentary, Esau, like covenant-rejecting Ishmael and Cain before him, will wander the wilderness to the east of the blessed land. This prophecy, along with the blessing Jacob had earlier received, would continue to be fulfilled long after the deaths of the men, as the nations descending from them would battle back and forth throughout ancient history. Esau has promised that his fate will be opposite of Jacob's, until at one point the yoke of submission would be removed. Hardly a comfort. And Esau does not take the news well. We read, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Esau was unable to overcome God's promise by using his father's word. So now, in the words of Calvin, he prepares himself to abolish the decree of God by the sword. In his haste to execute the impious brother, murder of his brother, the death of his father seemed to come too slowly, and he rejoiced at the prospect of its approach. Isaac's prolonged life is now just an obstacle to Esau's revenge. He holds back temporarily out of respect for Isaac. But his bitterness leads him to grow callous to his own father and to hate his brother. Gordon Wenham describes it like this. His plan does underline the intensity of Esau's hatred by the final word, so that I can kill my brother. He is bent not just on murder, but on fratricide. He is intent on slaying the very one whom he should protect. He is potentially a second Cain. What's that theme that we've been seeing all through Genesis? The seed of the serpent has risen once again to strike at the seed of the woman. And he would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for his meddling mother. Someone in Isaac's household is always listening at the door at just the right moment to hear evil plots as they hatch. And so when Rebekah is told of Esau's plan, she intervenes to save Jacob's neck. Uncle Laban is just far enough away that Esau can't get to him. And surely after a while, in the Hebrew she literally says, a few days, her older son will cool off and this will all blow over. If Esau kills Jacob, then either an avenger or perhaps God himself will bring retribution and Rebekah will once again be childless. So, one last conversation with Isaac 
that'll allow time for things to settle down, and then they'll all be one big happy family, right? So she tells Isaac, truthfully, that being around those Hittite women is making her life a living hell. If her favorite son and the now-confirmed heir of the promise, if he were to follow his brother's example and marry a local girl, Rebecca says, I might as well be dead. She does seem to have a flair for the dramatic. So she doesn't have to tell Isaac her plan. He gets the point. But while her hope is for time to heal all wounds, she's made a grave miscalculation. Jacob will be gone for 20 years. And spoiler alert from looking ahead, for the, from the rest of Genesis, she doesn't see him again. The last record we have of Rebecca right here is one more ironic twist. Gordon Wenham describes it like this. Her efforts on behalf of Jacob lead to his flight from home so that what she was seeking to avoid, why should I lose both of you, is what really happens So the career of the woman whose bright start promised to make her the female equivalent of Abraham eventually ends in shadow. For his part, Isaac now fully commits himself to the word of God, even if it's partially motivated by the concerns of his wife. Chapter 28 begins, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram in the, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Isaac has learned from the mistake he made with Esau. He's not going to let Jacob intermarry among the pagan Canaanites. Instead, Jacob, like his father, needs a godly wife from among his parents' relatives. And if that wasn't enough to show that Isaac had finally submitted to the Lord's election of Jacob, the blessing that follows makes it obvious. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away. Then he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Isaac is explicit in this second blessing. He is passing along the blessing of Abraham to his son. And he adds an expansion to it. Remember, Abraham was told he would be the father of nations. And while That was the promise to Abraham. The spiritual reality of the covenant's ultimate fulfillment is hinted at here in Isaac's blessing. He says that Jacob will be a company of peoples, peoples being different nations. And the Hebrew word for company here is the same word that's used throughout the Pentateuch to describe the religious assembly of Israel. In substance, this is the same prophecy that the prophet Isaiah would record in the Lord's words to his servant when he writes, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. 
I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The Lord would take individuals from multiple nations and make them into a religious assembly spiritually descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's going to need to treasure that promise that one day he's going to return. Because contrary to his mother's reassurances, two decades will pass with him estranged from the promised land. So he goes off with the blessing of God and the anger of his brother both hanging over him. The story is not complete without one more look at Esau and his foolish worldly ways. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. In the words of Derek Kidner, while Esau took the point, his attempt to do the approved thing was, like most religious efforts of the natural man, superficial and ill-judged. To take a third wife, even though an Ishmaelite was better than a Hittite, was hardly the way back to blessing. In, In taking matters into his own hands again, Esau chooses to align with the rejected family of Ishmael, leaving us with one final proof that in his heart, he belongs to the line of the serpent. So, we have the explanation of this narrative, the narrative in the life of our spiritual forefathers and mother. What then should we take away for reflection and application? While there's the obvious, don't lie, parents don't show favoritism, I want us to close with a quick look at each of the characters of the story, considering how they may be a mirror into our own lives and how we should respond. So first with Isaac. In Isaac, we see a faltering father. Moses portrays Isaac as as passive and ineffectual, and in this narrative, He also appears to be a man driven by his sensual pleasure. He overlooks all of Esau's faults because he loves the delicious food his son makes. Rather than exercising his authority as patriarch, Isaac avoids conflicts. And he subjects his own wife to misery in refusing to correct Esau. And worst of all, He attempts to subvert God's own word to achieve his own desire of passing along the blessing to his favored son, the one God rejected. So, those of you in authority, whether in your home or in God's church, remember Isaac's household was the household of God, I charge you to consider Are you avoiding a correction that you need to make? Are you showing unjust favoritism to those in your care? 
And oftentimes we make these applications. And for a lot of you, and especially for you kids, you go, well, I'm not an authority in my home. I'm not a parent. I'm not an elder in God's church. This doesn't have anything to do with me. I want you to listen, kids especially, because your parents' prayer and the prayer of the people of this church is that you'll grow up, that one day you'll leave your parents' home, and you'll have a home of your own where you'll have kids and you'll be in authority. My prayer is that from the number of Christ Church Bentonville, there will be young men that grow up to be pastors and elders that serve God's church. So when we make these applications, even though it may not apply to you yet, listen, because it will help you for what God may call you to in the future. So, those of you in authority or those of you who may be in authority, if you're avoiding a correction you need to make, if you're showing unjust favoritism, then I call you to fulfill your duty to rebuke, reprove, and correct. Exercise your authority that God has given you with equity. And then for us all, as we consider Isaac, are there ways that we're driven by our flesh rather than God's word? Are there any ways that you are trying to subvert the purposes of God to achieve your own ends? If so, repent and submit yourself to the Lord's direction. And if you refuse, don't be surprised when your efforts amount to nothing and the house you oversee tears itself apart because a house divided against itself cannot stand. About Rebecca. In Rebecca, we find a manipulative mother, or as Gordon Wenham calls her, a Machiavellian matriarch. She sees something of the truth, but in seeing the leadership vacuum that her husband leaves, she doesn't trust the Lord. Instead, she tries to help him out by undermining the rightful authority in the house and by devising ever more complicated schemes to get her way, especially for her favorite boy. From her example, let us see that we will never bring about God's righteous designs through sin. So are you tempted to grab power that is not yours? Instead, bring it to the Lord in prayer. In the proper context, confront those in authority with respect, calling them to faithfulness to God's word. But do not let bitterness fester. And above all, do not rope others into your plans to get things done the right way. Tempting them to sin along with you. The pressure of Rebecca's sin is what ultimately shattered this already fractured household of God. And in the end, it left her estranged from her beloved son and stuck with the misery of yet another pagan daughter-in-law. This is the way with all our efforts to do God's work for him in our own wisdom and in our own power. Esau. Esau is the fleshly firstborn. He's the only member of this household who rejects the word of God entirely. 
He prefers worldly comfort and prosperity to the promise of a heavenly inheritance. And that may be you. You might even be a covenant child who has been given the covenant sign of baptism, who has been taught the true religion, who sees what the world has to offer and is tempted to reject your birthright to pursue sinful pleasure. And especially for you teenagers on the cusp of adulthood, do not love the world. And in so doing, despise what the Lord has offered you as a child in His church. And for those of you that have wandered away from the Lord, please hear me that it is never too late to humble yourself and repent. But your own efforts will never bring you reconciliation to God. Only by putting your flesh to death and blessing the Lord Jesus, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, can you be blessed in him. All other blessings are no better than curses. Or maybe like Jacob, you're the sneaky sibling. In your relationships, you know just what to do to get what you want. Or even what you think is and what might be rightfully yours. You have no fear of lying and cheating to get it, only fear of getting caught. To you, I say, follow the command of Jesus. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Follow the example of Paul. Renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. Refuse to practice cunning, but openly state the truth. Do not sin, hoping that grace may abound. In the end, it may end up costing you far more than you expect. True faith always waits patiently and obediently for the Lord. But while those four human actors serve to demonstrate the futility of human effort against the will of God, the overarching lesson of this whole narrative is found in the one actor who is silent throughout, but is nevertheless working out his plan every step of the way. We can't end the sermon without looking at the sovereign Savior. The Lord would not let his purposes be thwarted. He had spoken about the promised blessing. And so even through the sins of each member of Isaac's household, God's word was fulfilled. He sits in the heaven. He does what he pleases. Each person makes his plan, but the Lord establishes his steps. Christian, you can believe what God says and you can submit yourself to it. He is truly sovereign over all. And his ultimate purpose that we've seen through the lives of the patriarchs has been to preserve a line so that the promised seed of the woman would come and reconcile sinful men, women, boys, and girls to a holy God. He would not let anything, even the sins of his people, Stand in the way of his gracious salvation of sinners. So let's close by making sure we've made this a Christian sermon. Because even in Jacob's deception, we find a foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ. 
In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin refers to the church father Ambrose's teaching on this passage. And he says this, Jacob, who did not merit the birthright in himself, personated his brother, put on his garments, which gave forth a most pleasant odor, and thus introduced himself to his father that he might receive a blessing to his own advantage, though under the person of another. So we conceal ourselves under the precious purity of Christ, our firstborn brother, that we may obtain an attestation of righteousness from the presence of God. Isaac smelling the odor of his garments perhaps means that we are not we are justified not by works, but by faith. And so indeed it is. For in order to appear in the presence of God for salvation, we must send forth that fragrant order, having odor, having our vices covered and buried by Christ's perfection. And so may we ever increase in our thankfulness to Christ, our elder brother, who willingly laid down his life that we may share in his blessing and his inheritance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our God, our hearts are prone to wander, and we feel it. We ask that you would, once again, demonstrate your grace to us through your word, that we may believe it, that we may obey in faith because you have loved us and you have saved us. Thank you for your word. May it do its work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.